We're going to be in Psalm 13 this morning. Psalm 13 is where we will be in our Bibles. We're continuing a study uh, going through parts of the book of Psalms called Real Psalms, Real Life. Just seeing how the book of Psalms intersects with the experiences of, of our lives, of the challenges we face. We are a, uh, an impatient generation. We're a generation that uh, wants everything to be instant messaging and dinners to be instant and throw things in the microwave and they are ready to go. We don't do well with traffic lights staying red for more than like eight seconds. We don't do well with the internet lagging. If, 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 if internet slows down to like dial-up speeds, we're like, we're living in the Stone Age. Uh, we don't do well with silence. You ever having a conversation with someone and there's that awkward silence? And you're like, I better fill it, and then you say something really dumb, right? We, we don't do well with, uh, with that kind of space. We don't do well with waiting. Uh, the average waiting time in a doctor's office is 18 minutes. But to hear us talk, we think it might as well be 18 days, right? Like, man, they're never going to come and, and, and call me back to my appointment. Now, maybe you have had some insanely long waits over time. We don't do well with uncertainty. And you know, it's especially challenging in our lives when God calls us to wait. When God calls us to wait, and it seems as if God is, has left the room, and he's saying, just wait right here, and he seems to be absent. Now, I say seems to be because God is never absent. He's a God who is omniscient, a God who is present in all times and places. But Psalm 13 speaks to this reality. It's a short psalm, just six verses but one that captures so profoundly, so beautifully, so accurately, so poignantly what it is like to wait when God does not seem to be there. Follow along, Psalm 13. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily. How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, or literally look and hear me. O Lord my God, lighten mine eyes, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemy say, I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But, but, I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. You notice just the movements in the psalm going from how long, O Lord, you seem distant to the end of the psalm being a a celebration, being worship, being trusting and treasuring God. This is a psalm that speaks to those here today who are in that time of waiting, where your heart is beginning to cry and wonder, how long is this going to last, God? Where are you? Where There's a tension, a tug of war in your heart between faith. It's like we know God is here, yet your feelings which seem to suggest that he is not. This is a psalm that speaks. By the way, do you notice David doesn't um, tell us exactly what the issue is? And I think there's some wisdom in that because it allows us to take this psalm and really personalize it. This speaks to the, the single adult who's been longing for years and years to be married, saying, how long, O Lord? Speaks to the married couple who are grappling with infertility, saying, how long, O Lord? It speaks to that heartbroken parent 
who's waiting for the prodigal to come home, who's looking down the road and saying, when's he coming back? Speaks to the sufferer who has been crippled by chronic pain. Say, I, I can't remember the last time I didn't hurt. How long, O oh Lord? Speaks to the individual who seems like, man, depression is just not let go. When's this going to stop? Speaks to the family that's been trying to adopt, but has yet had another birth parent walk out at the last minute. Speaks to the grieving widow, wondering if the loneliness will always be there. How long, O Lord? So that's you, and maybe there's other categories where you're like, man, there's a need in my life where I'm wrestling with the same question. This psalm speaks to you, and I want you to make it your own this morning. Psalm of David, a man who waited a long time. We know that he spent years and years and years from the time that, that God told him he would be king to the time that he actually became king. He knew what it was to say, how long, O Lord, till that promise is fulfilled. And, and during that time, he's got Saul trying to kill him. You can think of different periods in David's reign where he's waiting for God to come through and deliver him, maybe during the rebellion of Absalom or one of the, one of the times of turmoil during his reign. How long, how long O Lord? Like David gets it, right? He understands what it's like. For years he faced Saul's attacks. For years he awaited the fulfillment of God's promise that he would be king. So this is a psalm that expresses sort of an anguished faith that's like trusting God as you're walking through pain. It expresses that anguished faith in the midst of what seems to be a sort of glacial-paced time of waiting. You know, time doesn't run sort of the same for all people. Like, you know, they say time flies when you're having fun. But time drags when you're waiting at a red light, right? Uh, time can sort of fly when you're, when you're doing something you really enjoy or you're taking that test and the teacher's like, you've got 30 minutes to take it and you're halfway done and he's like, and it's time to turn it in. You're like, what happened to the 30 minutes? I think he, he tricked us. I changed the clock up there. Yet time will drag when you're waiting for the doctor's office to be like, hey, time to come back now. Man, when you are hurting, when you are suffering, time seems to go at an absolute crawl. So that cry of how long, notice it's repeated four times, and it's sort of escalating each time. How long, repeated four times, increasing intensity. That feeling that sorrow and pain will never come to an end. So when you're going through chronic pain, when you're going through persistent loneliness, when you're enduring long-term hostilities, they're hard to bear. And sometimes it feels like the clock, rather than spinning like an airplane propeller, feels like the clock has had the batteries taken out or is just completely wound down. So what do you do while you are waiting? When you're in that time where you're like, how long will this be? What do you do? The psalm has really divides neatly into to, to three segments, two verses apiece. Uh, we get kind of the complaint in verses 1 and 2. We get the requests in verses 3 and 4. A declaration of trust in verses 5 and 6. So what do you do while you wait? First off, while you wait, speak honestly to God. That's what's going on in verses 1 and 2. Just simply speaking honestly to God while you wait. The worst thing we can do is just shut down and be like, I'm tired of waiting and I'm not going to speak to God. The psalmist is coming to God from right where he is at of like, I've got questions in my soul. I've got feelings here that I don't know what to do with, but I'm going to verbalize those to God. I'm going to bring them to God. So that first question is, will you forget me forever, Yahweh? That's what verse, the first question is. Will you forget forever? Now, the very fact that he's speaking to God shows that 
at the bottom of this, in his, in his heart, in his faith, the psalmist knows God doesn't forget. But sometimes it can feel like it. It can feel like, man, if God were really here and God had remembered me and God were active, this wouldn't be happening because God's good, God's faithful. Circumstances can lead us to that place where we can feel as if, God, this would not happen. Think of, of, of Mary and Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right? If God had been present here, it doesn't seem like this thing would have happened in my life or that these circumstances would be dragging out. Circumstances can really whack you upside the head. They can leave you in a place where you feel exhausted when you're dealing with sort of unremitting stress. Think about when you're dealing with unemployment where you're like, man, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. Or you're raising a child with special needs or caring for a parent with Alzheimer's or facing the unchanging grind of the same old, same old, same old, and it can make you feel as if, where, where's God? It's a psalm that expresses the honesty of those feelings. When pain continues day after day, when grief continues night after night, when darkness goes without any hope, it can feel like God has abandoned you. And one thing I love about the Psalms is how it doesn't say, emotions are bad, go shove those into a drawer, never to be seen. Nor does it say, emotions are your identity, and so just kind of like embrace them as, this is who I am. It, it, it sort of diagonalizes, takes a different approach to say, emotions are God-given, but express them to God in prayer and submit them to God's truth, to the gospel. Now, the second how long question here in verse 1, so how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? First question is sort of like, Man, God seems to sort of have passively sort of walked away and forgotten that I'm here. The second question now is almost accusing, saying, God has deliberately turned from me. There's sort of an escalation here of the, of the complaint. Now, again, we know that God doesn't do this. But it's saying, the first question is saying, God seems to have ignored me. The second question says, God feels like he has rejected me. People get there sometimes. Now, at this point... It's, it's right for us to grab onto the gospel. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Or Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13. I, I love the way that Isaiah expresses this over in Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. Speaking to Israel, he asks this question, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. I love that hymn we sing uh, before the throne. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. God does not forget his children. We need to remind ourselves of that, but sometimes it feels that way. Now, the real issue that the psalmist raises here, like, yes, he's facing enemies, he's facing difficulty. We don't know what the difficulty is. But the primary concern here is theological. He's like... It's not so much the problem, but it's the problem that the problem raises. It's the suffering that I'm going through is raising profound questions about what God is like, and is he faithful, and is he present? Is he really here? He's seeing the struggle that he has, not just in terms of the external circumstances, but in terms of the transcendent God. And that's what's really giving him angst is like, okay, I'm suffering, but where is God? That's a big question. That's sort of the age-old question that sometimes is raised by skeptics, the problem of evil. There's an expression of it that we as Christians wrestle with. We're like, we know God is good. We know God is, is omniscient. We know that God is omnipresent. But where is he? What's going on? 
We know that God is in control over this world. We believe in the sovereignty of God over everything, over good, over evil. The Lord gives and the same Lord takes away. He's, he's in control of all of it. Yet we wonder if God's in control, why is the world the way that it is? We know that God is good, yet this doesn't feel good like what, what I'm going through right now. We know that sin and evil could never operate apart from his decree. We understand that sin and suffering are intrusions into his world, intruders that one day will be expelled, yet we ask, how long, O Lord? And we move on to the third question. Verse 2, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? So the questions now turn inward. The psalmist is saying, how long am I going to just sort of wrestle with this in my own soul? Uh, it's kind of a scary thing when you start listening to yourself. You ever have your mind kind of start running crazy, and you're like, well, it could be this, and it could be this, and it could be this, and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're thinking all of these possibilities that are so far removed from reality. Yet oftentimes that's where we get thrown when you're going through a hard time of waiting. We begin to turn inward and look for solutions inside ourselves. And a lot of those solutions are really dumb. A lot of those solutions are very unbelieving that we look to. As we suffer, as we wait, it's easy to take another step down into despair. We can become morbidly introspective. Well, maybe this happened to me because... I did this little thing over here. Maybe God's out trying to get me. Maybe there's a sin in my past. And we begin to just sort of dig up and dredge up all of these things in our lives, in our hearts. One commentator put it, said this, We know that men in adversity give way to discontent and look around them, first to one quarter, then to another, in search of remedies. Natural, right? You're hurting. You're like, I need to try something to fix this. We've got to be careful. That's a moment of extreme spiritual danger. For example... Abraham and Sarah, they cooked up their scheme with Hagar when the wait got a little too long. Moses killed an Egyptian when he thought, this needs to happen now. There were times when David was tempted to take matters into his own hands where his men are like, hey, go kill Saul, this is your big chance, when the waiting begins to drag out a little bit too long. Parents who long for children, for example, can begin to pursue morally dubious methods to get the good thing they want to say, hey, I would never have considered this form of treatment and it's sort of morally, ethically questionable, but I'm going to go ahead and give it a try anyway because I want children so badly. Or a person who has been single for, for a number of years can begin to think, I just want anybody in my life, and I know this guy's not a Christian or isn't a strong Christian, but I'm going to jump into that relationship anyway because I'm, I'm tired of waiting. Chronic sufferers can think that, you know, God's not going to heal. I deserve better in life. I'm going to just turn my back on God and do whatever feels good. Beware your own counsel. That's what verse 2 is. How long will I take counsel of my own soul, looking inward for the answers? He then goes on to say, this is the most telling. Remember, these, each one of these how long sort of amplifies the concern and the, the pain in his heart. Verse 2 then goes on to say, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Really what's going on with this question is, God, if you don't come through... These enemies that are my enemies, also your enemies, that, don't, that they actually hate God and hate his servant, they're going to they're gonna take credit. They're going to gloat over my failure. God has made the promise to David, you're going to be king. And if David doesn't become king because Saul kills David, it makes God's promise look like it is empty. So this is really a prayer to say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. It is your character that is on the line here. It's not just the pain that I'm feeling but how long will it appear that evil is triumphing and you don't seem to be present? 
There's a jarring honesty to this. So I say, when you're, when you're in the wait, speak honestly to God. Now, we talked a few weeks ago, it's never right to be angry with God, to blaming God and attacking God, but it is right to be honest with God, to bring our questions honestly to him. He already knows what's going on in our heart. There's nothing that you're going to tell God that is going to surprise him, right? Like, okay, no, that's no doubt. Like, he knows what things we have need of before we ask. There's something profoundly powerful about bringing our pain and our questions to God and being honest with him. It takes, it takes our Christian walk out of the realm of just, okay, well, I pray every day, I read my Bible every day, and it makes it real. It makes it real. Pain often is what fuels prayer. And real pain is often what fuels real prayer, this honesty with God. It's the heartache of rejection that often makes us cry out to him with this kind of raw honesty. I think that's often the reason why God does bring us into the waiting room. I think that is often why God brings us to the place of waiting. is to make us draw near to him. To transform our walk from one that is just sort of stilted to one that is genuine. From external sort of just religiosity to internal reality. So learn to deal honestly with God. Have you ever been real with him where you're like, all right, I'm just going to cut the nonsense and I'm going to be real and honest with my God? Have you ever been there? Now, the beauty of this, James says, draw near to God and he will what? He'll draw near to you. This isn't really, you know, real fancy theological profound stuff. This is how long and I'm just bringing the questions to God. This is a first sort of stumbling, staggering step towards God. It's like the toddler walking for the very first time, but we're making a move towards God. And as the psalm goes on, we see God's presence opening up more and more. So take your honest questions to God. Write them out. Put them into words. Speak them. So take this psalm. Take Psalm 13 and like... Put your, your problem, your pain, into the psalm and pray it back to God as an inspired framework or outline for working through pain during the how long. But there's a second step here. Not only should we speak honestly, pray honestly to God, secondly, we should plead boldly with God. To look at verses 3 and 4, and notice, by the way, how they sort of mirror and match and echo the complaints of verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, he says, like, God, you've forgotten. You've turned your face from me. My enemies are triumphing over me. Verses 3 and 4, consider and hear me. So it's like, God, you've turned your face from me. He says, see me. That's what that word consider, see me. And God, you've forgotten. Hear me. He's sort of answering those. Oh, Lord, my God, lighten mine eyes. Sort of like, give me strength. Give me, give me insight. Lest I sleep the death, sleep of death. Lest mine enemies say. So notice how that mirrors what he said, like, my enemy's going to gloat. Lest my enemies say, I've prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I'm moved. We've got to get out of the complaint and get to the place of pleading with God, of bringing our requests to God. This is not just sort of like sanctified therapy where you just come and complain, 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 and never make progress. This is coming to God, yes, here's the complaint, here's the problem, but now I'm going to call out to you to do something. Notice the imperatives, the, the, the actions here. Consider me, hear me, lighten mine eyes. So this second step is crucial. It does us no good if we never get around to appealing to God. 
Our goal is to move from this sort of this darkness of this place of crying out how long to getting to verse 6 of singing to God, moving towards his light. And so notice what stands in between verses 1 and 2 with the how long and verses 5 and 6 with the rejoicing and the trusting. Is right here in the center of the psalm is bringing our requests to God. Now, I love this little phrase in verse 3. Consider, hear me, O Lord, my God. He said earlier, how long have you forgotten? Now he says, no, God, you are my God. This is personal. This is going back to saying, you've made a covenant with me. You're my God. I've got a relationship with you. And I'm calling out to you on, on terms of that reality. He disbelieves his own feelings and trusts God's promises. We've got to get there to that place where we say, no, my feelings are not infallible. God's promises are infallible. And yes, it might feel like God has left the room, but I'm going to say, oh, Lord, my God, because I know he hasn't. I know that's kind of a crazy countercultural thing to say in a world that's like, follow your heart, trust your feelings. Say, no, disbelieve your feelings and trust God's promises. And speak the gospel to yourself. He is my God through faith in Christ. These are bold. These are direct. Look, listen, help. Look, listen, lighten. Like the, the, these pleas are, are direct and, and they're, they're bold in God's presence. So again, notice the solution for David has to do with God. He's not just take away the problem, but the, the real problem behind the problem is God seems to be absent. So the solution is going to be God sort of bringing his presence back into the middle of this thing. Our world wants to sort of locate all problems in either biology or sociology. That's all, it's either nature, it's nurture, those are all your problems. And certainly their problems get displayed in those, in those contexts, but the Bible really roots the ultimate problems in theology, a vertical relationship with God. That's where, that's where the, the real issues are, is my relation with God. I was made to know and to worship and to, to relate to this God of glory. And when that's out of whack and when idols come into that place, we've got real problems. So David's seeing his problems in terms of who God is. Yes, the enemies are real. Perhaps the physical and mental pain he's experiencing is real, but he's like, that's not the real issue here. I can deal with that if I know that God is present, if I know that God sees me and hears me. Now, the reasons we get here, he says, you know, God, you've got to lighten my eyes. You have to, if my eyes close, I die. Like, if you don't come in, I, I'm helpless he says, God, I don't even know if I can keep on going. I don't know if I can survive this. Tell that to God. God is the one who sustains our lives. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's the one who fulfills his promises. He's the one who gives us life. He's the one who gives us the next breath. He's the one who can sustain us through yet another day. She says, if you don't come through, God, the enemy will gloat and your promises will seem empty. So he's sort of saying, God, I'm calling you to be faithful to your covenant. I'm calling you to be faithful to your promise. I'm calling you to be faithful to your character. We see examples of this all over the place in the Bible where, he, where the, the people who are praying will say, here's God's promises. Now, God, I'm calling out to you to carry out and fulfill that promise. It's not an expression of doubt. That's an expression of faith. Don't think that, okay, God's promise, here it is, it's just as automatic good things. The mechanism often that God uses to fulfill his promise is the prayer of his people. We're going to look at Daniel, the book of Daniel tonight. We see the, a great example of this in Daniel 9. 
Daniel's reading Jeremiah and he realizes hmm, exile is going to last 70 years. God's promised this. So what does Daniel do? He doesn't say, great, we're all going home. This is great. I'm just, it's going to happen. What's going to happen? It's going to happen. He gets on his knees and he prays. God's promise has become the, the kindling, the, the fuel for our prayers. So what he's saying here in, in verse 4, like the enemy is going to triumph over me. Now, many of you don't have like an actual enemy, like someone out there who's trying to bring you down. But there is the great enemy of our souls, the, the roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. And oftentimes the struggles of God's people provide the grist for Satan's mirth. He's gloating over how God's people are struggling. Their faith is failing. At stake, again, is not merely our comfort, but the integrity of God's promises. So pray boldly to God. Doubt your own feelings. Declare, God, you are my God as a defiant faith against the darkness in the middle of the wait. In the middle of the wait. But it brings us to this this climax here in verses 5 and 6. As we're going through those times of waiting, those times of just suffering doesn't seem to go away, speak boldly to God. Bring the complaint. Bring the needs. Second, speak, uh, plead boldly with him. Bring these requests. Ask for God to intervene and to act. But thirdly, and, and perhaps most importantly, this is where we want to get, get to a place where you will trust resolutely in God. So verses 5 and 6, we get this, this contrast that's so frequent in, in these psalms. Okay, all these things are going, all these circumstances are going on, but verse 5 says, but I have trusted in thy mercy. Uh, the, the Hebrew is even stronger. And as for me, I've trusted in your mercy. So the, the enemies, he's talked about the enemies in verse, in verse 4. He says, they're rejoicing in my downfall. He says, but as for me, they, they're going to do whatever they're going to do, but as for me... I'm going to trust. This is like Joshua's, but as for me in my house, whatever everyone else does, whatever everyone else thinks, but as for me, I'm going to trust. That's why I say trust resolutely. This is a, a setting of your faith. This is an act of the will to say, in spite of what circumstances seem to be saying around me, there's something that's even more real than that, and that's God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Psalm is saying, I, I have trusted, as for me, in spite of what the enemy, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of all the appearances, in spite of my own feelings, I have trusted. So that's the subject of the trust is, is me, even if no one else does. I have determined to trust God. Now, it's a, I have trusted. He's looking back in the past. David gives us an example of this, the, the famous account of, in 1 Samuel 17 with David, Goliath, and they're like, what are you going to do? He says, okay, there was a lion, there was a bear. God delivered me out of the hand of the lion and the bear. He'll deliver me out of the hand of Goliath. It's looking back at God's track record of faithfulness. That's what all of Hebrews 11 is, by the way. The great, the great hall of faith chapter goes through all of the people through the Old Testament. Like, what, what's the writer of Hebrews doing there? He's not just giving like, hey, here's Bible story time. Everybody kick back and enjoy. He's speaking that to a bunch of Christians who are going through a very painful time to say, look, every saint through, the, the, through redemptive history had victory by faith, by resting in the promises of God. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. Like they went through hard times, through, through doubts, through dangers, and God carried them through. 
So then he gets into Hebrews 12, like, therefore, run with patience, looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of your faith. You're looking back at what God has done in the past to see he really is faithful. And then this looking ahead to the finish of the race. I have trusted. Now, here's the thing that's most stunning about verses 5 and 6. There's not like a whole chapter here to say, and God now has come through and fixed all the circumstances and the enemies have disappeared and it's now sunshine and roses and unicorns prancing through the meadows. Uh, some, some scholars are like, well, there's got to be a, a priestly pronouncement here or something that's going on or we don't have the whole psalm. No, I, I, I take the psalm as it is written as the inspired word of God. The change is not in David's circumstances. The change is in David's soul. The change is not in the what's happening around him, but the what's happening within him. I have trusted in thy mercy. There's still enemies trying to take him down. There's still something that he's waiting for that hasn't come about. But he has now fixed his hope, fixed his confidence, fixed his reliance in God's mercy. Just one other note on that word, trusted. I have trusted. There's a point at which he began to trust and continue trusting. The entirety of the Christian life is lived by faith, trusting in God, but it has a beginning point. It has a beginning point when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. You see, all of us are born into this world as sinners, trusting in ourselves, trusting in our idols, trusting in everything else other than God. There must come the point in time in our lives where we are born again, to use John's language, point in time where we repent of our sins and put our trust firmly in Jesus, when we turn from loving sin and relying on ourselves to sort of earn favor with God or find meaning in life, and we put our confidence in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus in the place of sinners. It has a beginning, but listen, it does not stop there. Sometimes we act as if the gospel is just, believe the gospel, I'm saved now, now I need to get back to really, you know, just working my tail off to try to make God happy. The entirety of the Christian life is I have trusted. I I began to trust, and I'm continuing to trust every step of the way. Again, that's another lesson you get from Hebrews 11. Trusting, it begins, yes, at conversion, but it continues. I've trusted in your mercy. The the word here is a a rich word. It's the kind of the Old Testament equivalent of grace. God's favor, God's covenant love, his loyal love, his loving kindness towards his people. It's, it's, a, it's an affection and a favor that's not based on my merit. This is not, David's not saying here, well, God's showing mercy to me because I'm a great guy and Saul's a real loser. This is based on God saying, I have set my love upon you. I have covenanted myself to you. That's mercy. Simply, he's putting his hope in what we would call the gospel. Here's here's an analogy for you. You ever see a dog that you're like, man, that is just an ugly, mangy-looking, flea-bitten kind of dog? And you're like, what what an awful-looking dog. I would never never take that dog home with me. And then you find out there's someone who absolutely loves that dog. It's their pride and their joy, and they have... What is it that makes that dog valuable? It's not the dog, right? It's the person who has taken that dog home and showered their love upon that dog. Right? In the same way, we're, in that analogy, we're the dog. Right? The value we have is not in, man, I'm bringing a whole lot to the table. No, it's that God has set his love and his affection on us. And I'm accepted in Christ. 
That's where my identity is. That's where my value is. He's saying, I put my hope in your mercy, your covenant love, your, your kindness that you've shown to me, not because of myself. God's love for his people is, an, is a, I will love you till death do us part, and then beyond into eternity kind of love. It's a love that is based on himself, not on us. Man, that's the, that's the opposite of the, have you forgotten me, God? And he's like, oh yeah, I remember his covenant loyalty. I've remembered what he has shown me. So how do I, where do I see this? God has this kind of love for all those who are in Christ, those who have turned and put their trust in Jesus. And he has demonstrated exhibit A of that love at Calvary. Romans 5, God demonstrates sort of puts on display his love. In that while we were yet sinners, while we were still rebels against him, Christ died for us. So when you begin to forget, God, have you forgotten me? Look back at the cross. The cross is sort of this megaphone saying, I love you and I always will and nothing will separate separate you from my love. It's the ultimate and final exhibit of God's love. So we might feel unloved when life is hard, but the cross tells us that this is not so. The cross shouts God's love over suffering's whispered doubts. And I'll say this, to trust God in the midst of suffering is actually better than having the suffering just disappear like that and not trust him. Now he goes on, so there's faith... I have trusted. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Let's put the word hope on this. Hope. Hope is basically faith that is looking to the future. Hope is basically saying, God, I'm trusting you for something that I don't yet experience yet. So notice the tense changes from I have trusted to my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. There's not a question, is God going to come through? Is God going to deliver? He's like, it's going to happen. And when it does, when it does, my heart's going to rejoice. This is a confidence in a deliverance that's not yet come. It's trusting, yet waiting. The point here is this psalmist is not simply looking to what God has done in the past, but he's looking to what God has guaranteed for the future. I've set my hope on God's future grace that's going to come to me down the road. Final deliverance, glory is going to come. All things will be made new, and it will be worth it all. Now, what's amazing, the same heart that was gripped by the question, how long, in verse 1, will God forget me forever, now says, one day my heart will rejoice in God's eternal and ultimate deliverance. I love that. You see, like David, we've got to get to this place where we trust God for deliverance from our past sins and hope in God's final deliverance down the road. The gospel is not simply about changing my, you know, my address, where I'm going to go when I die. It changes everything about the future. It's a deliverance from sin that gives us joy in the midst of our pain, a hope in the thick of hardship. The resurrection of Jesus means this, that death does not get the final word. Suffering does not get the final word. And so we can stand at a graveside as Christians go to a graveside service, saying goodbye to a dearly 
a dear loved one who trusted in Jesus, and we can say, death is swallowed up in victory. We can say, where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O grave, or where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. And then we finally get here at verse 6. I will sing unto the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So we have faith looking back. We have hope looking ahead. And we have love anticipating this worship of Yahweh. I will sing to the Lord, to the I am, to the one who is ever true. A resolve to sing. To sing in the middle of suffering. Man, that does something in your, in your heart. When you say, okay, I'm hurting and I'm going to sing when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That does something in our heart. We don't just sing to express happy feelings. Sometimes we sing to change the way that we feel. Right? There's something about singing that takes the truth of the gospel and sticks it. It makes it makes it hang in there when, when, when makes us hang in there when we don't feel like it. So when you come to church on Sundays, you're like, I'm not really a, yeah, I'm not really a good singer. Sing. God commands us to sing, and, and us singing does something for our own hearts, and it does something for the hearts of the people around us. There might be someone whose heart is hurting so bad, they're like, I just can't sing right now. But hearing you sing could make a difference. Get yourself a hymnal and sing the gospel into your soul. Sing. Don't just, don't just listen. Now, the reason for this, he's dealt bountifully. Really, David? You just finished talking about all the suffering and the hardship you're going through, and you're going to say, God has dealt bountifully with me? God has dealt graciously with me? He's got perspective now. He's brought his feelings into line with reality. And he realizes that God is infinitely and ultimately good. The very thing he was questioning at the beginning of the psalm is now answered profoundly by the end of the psalm. He has dealt bountifully with me. He's given me far more than I deserve. So you're maybe in that place this morning of waiting. Maybe some of the things I mentioned may be a completely different category altogether. Waiting can be a profound time of growth. Where our relationship with God grows as we realize, okay, I should be honest with God and tell him what's really going on. You know, you have a good friendship, and a good friendship is marked by, I could talk about anything. The friendship, the relationship with God often grows when we're like, you know what, I'm going to just get beyond just praying these sort of canned prayers and repeating what I've heard and stringing together a bunch of cliches. Time of waiting can be a time of great growth in our relationship with God as we speak honestly with him and bring our questions and our doubts, our pains, all of it. But it can be a time where our confidence in God's power also grows. Where We're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plead boldly. Here's the thing about pleading boldly is I'm assuming God has the ability to do it. And so my confidence in God's power and in his ability to work is growing through the weight. And then my faith, that final movement here, becomes all the richer through the weight. Think about this. If Whenever I went to God and was just like, hey, God, would you come help me? And boom, there it is. I would no longer treat God as a God to love and worship and trust. I would treat him as basically a big cash register. Right? I treat him as sort of a genie in the bottle, like there he is, he's there to do whatever I want him to do. But when God says, wait, I have something so much better. When God tells us to wait, it's for 
our own good, even if we don't see it this side of heaven. I'm not just meaning in a trite way, like, well, God delayed me from getting home, and if I had left at the time that I wanted to leave, I would have been hit by a semi-truck. Sometimes that happens, but a lot of times we don't know why. He never tells us this side of heaven. But I do believe we will get to heaven one day and look back and see that every hardship and every delay and every wait and every unexpected turn was ordained by a loving Heavenly Father who loved me too much to leave me in a place of immaturity. So take prayer as this great gift God has given. Take Psalm 13, six verses. This is not a hard psalm to read. Turn it over in your heart and your mind. Read it in a few different translations. Get the sense of what it's all about. And then say, I'm going to paraphrase this into my own words and use this as a way to express what I'm dealing with right now to God. An inspired framework. When you pray, don't leave out your questions. Because if you do, you're probably being superficial. Don't leave out your requests, otherwise you're doubting. But get to this place of trust. So let me just plead with you, don't waste Don't waste your weight. Let God work through your weight. Father, we often can echo what the psalmist says and cry, how long? 